thank you very much for the intro. Uh, so yeah, really happy to be here today and just answer any questions you have. Um, I think it'll be a really fun discussion. Uh, just thought I'd kick it off with maybe like three, four minutes just about myself and like how I ended up here today. Um, so I was born in Connecticut, um, grew up in France. Uh, parents are Norwegian and Turkish. Daria has a Turkish name, that's why I have a funny name there. Um, I went to college uh, in the US, uh, in New Orleans, played college tennis. I love making beer, I love learning languages. Like Those are kind of like my, my pastimes and actually led me to one of my big career decisions back in, in 2012, we'll talk about that. Uh, what else did I put up there? Yeah, been here for about three years in San Francisco uh, and joined TaskRabbit a little over a year and a half ago. Um, and so I thought I'd give you, like, I have no idea what you guys are going to ask me today, uh, but I know one common question is, like, what's the right way into product management or like, what, how did you get into it, et cetera? Mm -hmm. uh, and so I thought, if you guys can see this, I'll just kind of talk through it. So the short answer is, as I'm sure many of you know, there's no single answer of like how to get into product management, right? So graduated college in 01, then took a job in advertising, account management, stayed there three years. So it's like very like project management-y. Uh, from there, I was like, well, you know, I wanna be the client. I wanna be the person on the other side of the table, not just in charge of, you know, the communications and the advertising, but I wanna like own a P&L, I want to, you know, manage from like initial research to development of like physical products at the time, to then like packaging and branding and then the campaigns and then you launch and then all the analysis and grow the business, blah blah blah. Um, and I wanted to do that internationally at the same time. Uh, as I mentioned, I grew up in France. I already spoke uh, French, not at a professional level, but I decided to give it a go. Quit my job, went to France without a job. Uh, had some interviews, uh, Yoplait decided to give uh, a go on me, which was great. Um, so I ended up spending uh, uh, about two years there uh, doing brand management, uh, managing three of, of Yoplait's brands uh, in the French, uh, Belgian markets, uh, which was really fun. I got to work in French and like the first three months I thought I was gonna get fired because like I knew, st I was, knew stuff was in my head but I couldn't express myself properly and so Anybody who's working in a language that's not their native language, like, I know how you feel, trust me. Uh, fortunately, got uh, you know, to a better level. Um, then I had a big realization, which has been uh, a real guiding force for the rest of my career, which was, you know, oh, it was great for my resume, I got international experience and blah, 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 but I didn't really care that much about yogurt. I mean, it was great and everything, you know, I like yogurt. <laughs> Um, and so I was like, all right, I'm going to go to business school and just try to like, you know, you come up with a story of why you want to go. And I, I thought I wanted to get into marketing within media. So um, I went to NYU, did an MBA for a couple of years. Uh, and then after that decided, actually, I don't want to do that. And at the same time, there was a, a crash in the market in the US. And I was like, eh, there aren't any jobs that interest me. My dad worked in international development uh, for the UN, and I said, you know, I've always had an interest in this, but it, I never oriented my career towards it. So I said, okay, well, now I, I think I might as well, since there's nothing I see great in New York or anywhere else, I'm gonna go work for a social entrepreneur. So I did that. I uh, worked for an Ashoka fellow in uh, the jungle in Ecuador for three months, volunteered, uh, really fascinating project. Then as that was like a month before ending, uh, a couple of other entrepreneurs from Mexico City who were in the tequila industry, um, with this brand called Milagro. I don't know if you like tequila, maybe you see Milagro tequila around. They contacted me through a buddy I knew at business school and said, hey, we have this idea for a food business. 
uh, there's nothing to do with alcohol. Would you be interested in coming for three months to help us with a project uh, and just kind of doing the initial strategy? Three months ended up becoming 10 months or so. Uh, where I lived in Mexico City and it was really fun. Actually, working in Spanish also was good fun. Like, my Spanish is not as good as French, but it was a good experience. Um, killed the business before we launched it. Um, risk profile ended up being too great, but that's also a good thing. I didn't waste a bunch of money. Uh, came back, took a job with American Express. I, I didn't pay attention to my own career advice. Uh, a lot of my friends from business school, like American Express hires a lot of people from New York University's uh, MBA program. So I had some friends who were like, oh, you're looking for a job. We have some opening here and here. Why don't I introduce you? Um, I ended up going working there for like nine or 10 months in an operations role. Um, wasn't really for me. I convinced myself that it's like, oh, it'll be great because I'd like to learn more strategy and that. Um, it was fine, but um, it didn't really speak to me. So um, look for a new job. And what do you know? The language thing kind of came in. I never looked at tech. Um, and I saw a Rosetta Stone job open in DC for a product manager. And uh, everybody has their own way of learning languages, if you're into that. Um, I don't learn the Rosetta Stone way, like the just kind of feel it and get it and whatever. Like I'm much more like grammar focused. But I was like, you know what, but it speaks to me. I want to you know, figure out uh, how I can help people learn language. Uh, I ended up going there, selling myself in, basically saying, uh, and this gets into like the PM interview kind of part, like the way I sold myself in as a career switcher was, you know, I've never worked with engineers before. I've never, I don't know Agile. I don't know any of this stuff. But it's the nuts and bolts. Like, you can just learn that stuff, right? Uh, but 80% of the job, which is all of the other stuff, which is, you know, like strategy and like long-term versus short-term and like working with various people and different interests and all that kind of stuff, I can already do that kind of stuff. Or I'm okay at it. So they bought my story and they brought me on. And I um, ended up working on a product that we launched from scratch, not the yellow box, but this um, uh, a, a, uh, a, an advanced uh, English uh, product for people who are non-native speakers working in professional environments. Um, and it had like voice recognition. And it, had, it was like very grammar focused, really, really fun. Um, and then they opened an office in San Francisco after eight months that I was there. Came over here, they built a team. Uh, so that was really, really fun. Stayed about two and a half years. Um, they ended up actually closing the San Francisco office. Uh, I don't know if many of you are familiar with Rosetta Stone, but it's kind of like, yeah, dying a slow death. Um, so they closed the San Francisco office, got laid off. Uh, and then I was like, well, what am I going to do next? Um, and the former chief product officer from Rosetta Stone uh, at that time was uh, an entrepreneur in residence um, at uh, Target Innovation. Uh, so it's like this small part within Target where they try to like incubate new companies and so on and so forth. He's like, hey, like, you're, you're, you're now looking for a job. I need help because I'm like in the strategy phase for like uh, a couple of like interesting new products that I want to like launch from scratch. You want to come work for me while, while you interview? Great. So I was doing that, uh, consulting for a handful of months. Uh, and meanwhile, um, I started interviewing with TaskRabbit. And 10 interviews later, they hired me. <laughs> <laughs> lengthy process and I've been there since um, August of 2015 and um, anyway so I'll stop there I'll talk more about TaskRabbit as we go and explain what TaskRabbit does for those of you who haven't used yet awesome I have some key questions ready just yeah. in case you don't ask them but I'm sure you'll like it top three every, every MA comes up so the floor is yours guys is there any question for Daria? Daria can you just talk a little bit more about that process when you're um, interviewing uh, for roles around time you make TaskRabbit what, was, what were some of the things you learned through that process that 
The question is about the, the PM interview process. Do you have some, some tips about that? Yeah, it's a great question. Um, it's very insightful to go through the interview process because typically if product managers will interview with people from many, many different functions because as a PM, you're going to work with all of these people all the time. And so it's a very interesting experience, like learning things from their lens. So I got interviewed by... Uh, director operations and later the COO, uh, and they asked me like very, like very operations type, efficiency type questions, and like, well, here's a problem that we're currently trying to solve, and this and that, and here are the different levers I mean, in a marketplace type of company. Like, you, you change one thing, another thing goes down, and you're not sure about the third thing, and so it, it helped me get um, a glimpse into like what are the interests and the way of thinking of people in this position. Um, another example is um, uh, an engineer who's now on, 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 a, on a, my web team that I work with. Uh, he asked me one of the things that I remember to this day. It was so insightful. And he said, tell me about a time when you had to uh, bring somebody aside to give them news that, or have a conversation that you knew they wouldn't like. And how did you handle it? And to me, especially coming from an engineer, which I thought was awesome, I was like, wow, this company, like that question says so much about the company culture and the things that they value, right? Like, and indeed, TaskRabbit like, ended up being one that like do, does a lot more than lip service to like culture and communication, but they actually like invest in it as a two-day course every new person goes to and da da So I guess just to come back to your original question, like um, a PM interview, if you get to know the lens that other people view their own challenges within the business. Um, that's insightful. You can also get a really good idea of the company culture through the questions they ask. I hope that helps. We get this question a lot at, at product school. A lot of our students try to break into product. And we, we use this funnel to show them how many companies you actually need to apply in order to get X amount of job offers. And obviously it depends on the person, depends on your background and so many. But we definitely encourage them to at least um, identify 30 companies that are a good fit for them. And good fit is not like, I want to work at Google, Facebook, TouchRabbit, and Airbnb. It's also about, okay, where are you coming from in terms of background? How many years of experience? How ready are you to get this job? And then if the companies are hiring and if the location is fine, and if you meet all of these variables, then it counts. So once you have at least 30 of those, then you can start the process because even though you are awesome and the company seems like the perfect fit for you, <laughs> there's a high, high chance that they are going to say no. So getting a job, especially a PM job, is kind of a job itself. So, so the question is about uh, prioritizing features in your roadmap. How do you go about adding uh, your own uh, vision and moonshot ideas versus uh, customer insights? That's an incredible question. Um, so I think there's two sides to it. Um, one is on prioritization and another is on like vision versus data-driven uh, decisions. So uh, I'll answer the prioritization one first. Prioritization is so hard. It is so hard. Um, 
it involves a lot of tough conversations. It, you've heard the word ruthless a lot. Like it actually is ruthless prioritization, especially if you're in a smaller company that has limited resources. Like it is a zero sum game, right? Like you choose like two or three bullets, so to speak. That means you're not doing other things. And so how do we, and I can go much more into this if you guys want, uh, but one way that we um, found pretty effective to, to do prioritization is to, um, you, you need a North Star that's set, whether it's by you know, the exec team or, or some other body, but you need some kind of North Star that all teams with all their different interests are kind of lining towards. And then from that, like, we use an OKR, like an objective and key result uh, system. I think it's something that Google started a long time ago. But basically, let's say you have these umbrellas of like North Star and like ways to kind of get there. And so we just do kind of an impact effort uh, type of t-shirt sizing based on whatever data we have. And then try to use like another axis of like confidence level that we're right or that we can execute it, right? And that brings a whole nother thing of like, you need to improve your estimations over time. Like we don't do enough of like retroing, like were we good with our, with our estimates? Um, but doing like an impact effort especially uh, kind of levels the playing field and helps people on different teams with different interests, whether it's different product teams or ops and customer support and all this with who all have product needs, um, kind of see each other's worlds because often like people have can get a siloed view. And it's important to like, if I'm like, hey, we're kind of agreeing here that your thing is like the fourth highest priority, but it might not actually get started for like a month and a half, right? And, but that needs to be like an okay conversation to have based on open information. So um, the second uh, part of it is um, vision versus data driven. Um, being data driven is very, very important, right? Um, it's, it, you know, shooting from the hip type of stuff. Like it's okay once in a while, it's great. You need the intuition, you need good kind of, yeah, intuition as a PM. But a lot of stuff you need to do, like it, it's very helpful if you back it in data and if you set up your system such that you can test things. Uh, but then there you are, you're on like one mountain, right? And you're trying to get higher and higher on that mountain in terms of achieving whatever you're trying to achieve. But then there's another mountain over there. And sometimes you just need to take that leap. And sometimes there isn't the data. And at that point, like there's no right answer. It's, it's a balance, really, um, I think. Um, there's this economist that once said something along the lines, I might butcher this, like people aren't asking for uh, like a, a drill, like a four millimeter drill, they're asking for a four millimeter hole. And like don't, you can't fall in love with like the mountain that you're on and the product that you have. It's like if you just try to stay very mindful of like what's the job we're trying to do here, right? And is and you might have iterated on this current product and iterated and iterated, but if you fall in love with that thing rather than removing yourself and having this gut check once in a while of like what's that mission and what like has the business evolved in the last six months or a year or two years where like it's time to take that leap of faith based on what we just believe is the right thing um that conversation is certainly a healthy one hope that was that was kind of a long answer and i hope that was helpful so just along the same lines i'm curious so about either human-centered design um, and or um, like design thinking and if that is a part of what you incorporate in what you do. So the question is about design thinking and how do you incorporate design thinking or human interaction design into your regular product process? Absolutely. Um, 
So I'll just, I'll just describe what we do at TaskRabbit, generally speaking. Uh, it's not the same for every project, but there's a general kind of approach that we take. Um, so we like to test things. So this is in no particular order, but like we like to test things. So we have data. So it starts with that. And then let's say there's a business reality, and we're like, all right, there's an opportunity here, or a weakness here, or something, or we're getting complaints here, and it's not like a bug, but it's like, something that's the user experience is not good and it's just like they're trying to do this thing and they're butting you out of the way to get there because they need to do that. Um, so we start by see, first seeing if the, if the data will offer any insights. And the data can also include videos, right? So we use this um, company called Hotjar and they like, you know, record um, kind of like screen, screen recording so you can see like where people are going and all that. And, there's another company that does the same thing for like native iOS and stuff like that. So, you know, data says one thing, uh, but then, um, you know, videos kind of say something else. Like you think of like a hiring funnel, it's like, I measure it every week and it's like here, then it's here, then it's here. But guess what? You watch the videos and they're like here and here and they're like, actually, no, I'm going to go back to the homepage and do this thing. And like, what does that say about the user experience, right? Um, so let's say we have that and we form some hypotheses. All right. So then it, it, it depends on the situation, right? Sometimes you want some divergent thinking. Sometimes you want to just go out and talk to people. Sometimes we have um, at TaskRabbit a tasker council. Uh, so there's two sides to our business we call. Uh, so let me back up first. For anybody who, hasn't, uh, who isn't too familiar with TaskRabbit, that's probably the easiest thing. Um, TaskRabbit is a two-sided marketplace uh, company where uh, people who need help with something, so and we call them clients. So it's like I need help moving, or I need a handyman to come fix something, or help improve something, or you know, um, help you know clean my place, or deliver stuff, or put together IKEA furniture. Like similar, we match those with people who can help do those things for them. So we call them taskers, and uh, the taskers set their own prices. Uh, so as a tasker, I can say you know I want to assemble IKEA furniture and do handyman stuff, and I'm going to charge fifty dollars an hour. I'm going to charge $35 now. I'm going to charge $8. They work. Clients come in. You can choose them. Or you can just say, I'll send it to the whole world. Right? Um, and uh, anyway, so there's a whole review system and everything's transparent and so on and so forth. So that's all right in a nutshell like how we work. So going back to the taskers, um, we have a tasker council, like a group of them who like they're, they volunteer for feedback or like we show them designs. We ask them what annoys them, what they like, etc. Then we might have a, a, a brainstorm. Uh, sometimes it's just in product. Often it's usually with people outside of product because different perspectives are good. Um, and then we just kind of go through uh, a design process, which is pretty standard. But like we get a lot of, uh, we try to get non-users using. We try to get current users using. Uh, then there's like the, the drunk test or the bar test or the kid test or whatever. Like is what you're doing simple enough? So like. You know, sometimes you just go and like show to your friends or, have to, you know. Um, and then, you know, it just depends on the confidence level of like, what's the downside of getting this thing wrong, right? If the risk is very low, are you really gonna spend like all the time in the world to be precise, right? It's, it's that balance between fast and good. And it's different for whatever you're doing, right? Uh, so if the risk of getting it wrong is big, or there's a big investment, or there's a big financial thing, or whatever, you spend more time validating, validating, maybe you do some rapid prototyping, get that in front of people, or, and then eventually you probably put it out there, and maybe test it, and iterate. So, uh, pizza pie. Mm -hmm. uh, can you tell us more about your insurance, uh, is it more in the service that is 
So the question is about insurance. How do you provide uh, insurance to the clients that hire taskers on the platform? That's a great question. Um, so I actually don't know the name of the insurer that we have, but there is one. It's on the website. It's, I mean, it's somewhere, probably in the terms and conditions or something. But uh, at Tasker, we have a $1 million uh, guarantee uh, on every task. Um, interesting note, we call it $1 million even in the UK. Like we tested like, is 750,000 pounds or whatever. No, they actually want to see dollars. Which is, it just sounds like, hey, they're the one, they, it works for them. So anyway, um, so we have a $1 million guarantee. If anything happens on the task and it's our fault, uh, we pay. We pay, whether it's the client, uh, we've poked a hole in their wall or there's a, a leak or something like that. If it's our fault, we'll fix it, whatever, you know, whatever it takes. Um, and then same thing on the tasker side, if they get you know, into... I don't know, something happens, some accident or something, and that happens sometimes, uh, or there's some kind of like fraudulent stuff going on and they've used their own credit card to like pay for some, you know, not designer jeans that the, the client said they wanted, but it was fraudulent and they couldn't get the money on, you know, reimbursed or whatever, like we take care of the taskers and all that. So um, anyway, there is a guarantee. Uh, we Do you want to know like how we fund it? Um, so on every... Uh, task, uh, there's a what we call a trust and support fee, uh, and basically this funds uh, like that insurance guarantee and also like our, our system of kind of taking care of whoever needs the help. Um, yeah. So the question is about um, how can you personalize uh, such a big market marketplace and segment the different type of customers that you have? Yeah, that is something we that is something we pay a lot of attention to, uh, and it's not easy. So, um, <coughs> you know, in in certain types of businesses, let's say you know Uber, Lyft, whatever, like very complex businesses, but the service is, is pretty standard, right? You get in somebody's car, you expect it to be reasonably good condition, and you expect them to take you safely somewhere, and then goodbye. Um, with TaskRabbit, you're absolutely right. It's a very personal business, right? So you could have um, someone like come in and clean your place. You could have a handyman come and you know fix some stuff, whatever. Um, and so then there's this kind of challenge of like, all right, um, do we try to standardize the offering? But how do we define a standard offering so that it's easy for the client to digest uh, and expect to know what you know what to expect and whatnot? And then like, but then what about people who need very personal stuff because it's a very human business? Uh, there's no easy answer. I'll I'll just give you a few kind of data points of questions that we have tried to some degree or another to address. Right. So number one, um, it is very common. I mean, you know, relative to, you know, calls that we get to our customer support, it's, it's, it's you know, uh, not infrequent that we'll get a caller, uh, a client call in and say, like, 
oh, the person cleaning my place, the task of cleaning my place is deliberately taking long time so that they can build more, right? Like, and, you know, it's, it's um, I mean, it's not a nice thing to hear that, right? We're like, oh, really? But if you think about it, like all of us have probably had the perception that a certain thing we're gonna do is gonna take a certain amount of time, right? I just need, to, okay, I'm after work, I'm gonna go to the grocery store, I'm just gonna pick up groceries, it'll take 20 minutes. Then I'm gonna go home, cook dinner, da da da, then I need to do this other thing. And then like, you check your watch and like, wait a second, how much time is going by? Like stuff just, oh, the commute took a little longer. Oh, the line was long, oh, this thing. So one thing, which is a challenge for us, is the perception of, of, of a task size or complexity versus the reality of what it is. Mix into that the tasker's own skill level. So let's take assembling IKEA furniture, for instance. Like our taskers are all like good at what they do. They'll do something really fast, but like one tasker might assemble this thing like let's say five minutes faster than another, right? Like you can't. It's very difficult to like standardize that, right? Like they don't work. They're independent contractors and all this, and um, but they're all just generally good at what they do. Um, so how do you standardize that? We have tried standardizing. Um, Last year, we came up with a recurring uh, cleaning uh, option, uh, and that has a certain standard uh, to it, uh, which is totally voluntary. But basically, the idea is like, hey, um, at a if if you do a, a cleaning task, like our clients, I mean, they would always call us and say, like, we we don't have supplies all the time. Sometimes they have supplies, sometimes they don't, and they would say to us, like, this is weird. You're sending over a tasker to clean my place, and they don't have a, like a mop. Right, um, and so sometimes it is possible if it's if it's like very much like because of client demand to be like, all right, you know, if you opt in to do cleaning, like, you know, you would expect to be given a mop and all this, and like there are ways to get it very cheaply and all this kind of stuff. Um, the other, the last thing I'll touch on in terms of standardization is price. Um, if if any of you have used our product uh, or looked at it, you might notice two different uh, ways of getting a tusker. One is I look at your profile, your profile, your profile, and you're 40 an hour, you're 50, you're 30, um, and you have different experience levels and all this, and, and that's okay because every task, like one of the beauty of our platform is every task sets their own price, and they get lots of work. Um, but then some clients, it's, it's a lot of mental friction, right? Like, I don't know, like, wh wh who's best, who's going to... So there's this option called Quick Assign. Uh, which you'll notice in the product, and it's uh, a set price, um, which is a good price uh, for, for taskers as well. And what happens is if the client sets, says, hey, I want to do this for 40 an hour, and I don't really care who does it, or I don't want to think about it, what that does is that, um, that goes into the app that taskers have uh, as what we call an available task, and it's totally opt-in. It's like, yep, here's this thing. It's a moving help, and it's you know 40 bucks an hour or whatever it is. And if you want to pick it up, great. If you don't, that's 100% okay. It's there, everybody can see it. And, and what this does is say like, let's say my normal price is like 35 an hour. I'd be like, wow, I'm totally gonna do that. Right. Let's say my price is like 45 an hour. I don't have to take it, but what if, if I want and I'm not doing anything else and I choose to do it, sure, I'll do this one task at this price, but I'm not changing my own price. So, yeah, personalization, standardization, it's a tough one.
So the question is, what's TaskRabbit North Star, and how do you communicate that to who? Coworkers? Uh, oh, coworkers internally. Yeah, internally. Yeah, that's great. So our North Star is um, revolutionize everyday work. And it sounds like, if you just think about it for a second, um, there's a lot that that means, right? If you think about the last five years, seven years, eight years of like the nature of work, right? Uh, there's a lot that's developed, right? And there are a lot of people in different situations and different uh, circumstances who want more work. Um, and also, there's a much more kind of fluid understanding of like what people kind of, how they want to free up their own time so that they can concentrate on other work that they want to do or with their families more, et cetera. And so, you know, there's, there's this idea that how can we fluidly get into the lives of people who want to do work and do it on good terms that feel good and have that work, have that opportunity anytime you want um, in kind of whatever, whatever they're good at. Right, um, and it's it's a really good north star. It's a really difficult one. Um, you know, like our, our CEO has, has told a story before Stacy about you know even growing up in Detroit. Like her mom was you know working two jobs and was like would fall asleep with her and her sister as they would like go over their um, homework at night together, and they were like not very good paying jobs and all this, but needed to do it to keep the family together. And imagine if TaskRabbit had been around at that time, right? Like, you could be a lot more flexible, but also make a good a good hourly rate uh, and stuff, and hopefully, like, retain some of that energy to, um, to spend with your family. And that's just one specific type of, of, uh, of example, but, um, yeah, there's a lot that goes into it. Hope that helps. So do, do you get tasks that are not picked up by any tasker, and how do you go about that? <laughs> yeah, uh, there are some tasks that are like, dog threw up on the carpet, and <laughs> like, it happens, right? Um, and taskers are not um, obligated to pick those up if they're uh, an available task. Uh, and also, if I'm a tasker and, and, and someone like sends me a, a request to, to work together, and what we call an invitation, uh, and it's a task that, like, let, let's say is outside of my skill set. So if I'm a handyman, um, but the person wants me, the client wants me to, like, drill, like, take down a wall or do something that, like, really should be done by a professional, right? Uh, or it's something that's, like, like we, we've gotten this, like, you know, like a cockroach-infested bedroom, da, 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 like, help clean it up. Like, there are things where, uh, for safety reasons, uh, it's, like, Tasker is okay to say no to that, right? Like, it's okay. <laughs> um, and, and they just decline the job, and there's, you know, they give a reason for it, and, and it's, it's fine. So not 100% of the tasks that come on the platform are then completed. Um, yeah. I have a question for you about your, your path into product management. It's very interesting. And here in Silicon Valley, we hear a lot of stories about software engineers that become product managers. 
And that's okay, but in your case, you took a very different route. How did you get away? Um, like, how do you build up your technical background or how do you earn the respect of your engineers? Mm-hmm. Great question. Um, I have a philosophy, and this is just my personal opinion, uh, that you don't need a technical background to succeed as a PM. Now, would like a big data, super platformy type of company hire me? Like, hell no, right? I wouldn't want to work there either. It's not like my thing, but like, if you want to work there as a PM, you better probably have like a computer science degree or something like that. Uh, but for a lot of businesses, like such as TaskRabbit, such as Rosetta Stone, such as, like, uh, you don't need a, a technical background. But at the same time, that doesn't mean that any time an engineer talks to me, I'm just like looking like a blank face, right? Because that's not, it's not helpful, right? Like, so um, I would just say, if you don't have a technical background, fear not. But there are just some, some things that you need to learn and understand um, in order to work well with engineers. Uh, so I'll, I'll rattle some off in just like no particular order. Um, number one is like you should be able to, for any body of work, it's a good skill to be able to just eyeball it and even without technical knowledge, uh, heavily technical knowledge, be able to understand like is this big, medium, or small? Like, what's the this, what's this scope we're talking about here, right? Number two is you need to develop the, the ability to understand if there are going to be dependencies on something else, right? Because uh, there are often, like, many teams, or there's, you know, like, oh, doing this one thing, and I'm on, you know, this team, but, like, actually a platform there is going to have some big implication because of such and such, and they're in the middle of working on these other things, so I won't be able to, even if this is the right thing to do, it's going to require work over here, and that's not going to start for this long. And so what do we do? Do we adjust expectations, prioritize differently? Are they working on the right thing? So dependencies, I can be able to understand those. Um, Another thing, never promise delivery dates. I mean, if there's like, you know, you have a partnership and there's a contract and you like have to launch on a certain day or some big PR announcement, like yes, like of course you work towards a date. but there, there's, there are a few things that engineers hate more than a product manager going and like talking externally to other people and being like, oh yeah, this thing we're gonna ship it next week. Unless you already have estimated it and you have a high confidence that like you know your team really well and you can talk confidently like that, but, but don't like go around like promising stuff, right? Um, and there's one really important reason for that. I don't know if any of you have done agile training, but like statistically, yeah, I'm gonna screw up the number by like a couple of percentage points, but like roughly speaking, Every sprint, sprint in terms of like the points estimated for it is forty percent. It's forty percent more than you originally estimate. Just across teams, like that's not TaskRabbit. It's just a statistic, right? So you need to prepare for uncertainty. And so again, that brings to another lesson as a non-technical PM. You have to understand that when you estimate something, like there's this, there's this difference between, and these are all just kind of muscles you build up, right, over time. But as you've heard, nothing I've said requires actual coding knowledge, right? But like, you need to figure out a roadmap, right? Gotta have a roadmap. Whether it's long-term, short-term, whatever, but as as I'm sure many of you know, the farther out it is, the more fuzzy it is, and there are many reasons for that, right? One, you don't know where the business is gonna be six months down the road, or even three months down the road, potentially, depending on the business. And also, because you find out more and more, the closer you get to stuff. So you have this balance between 
um, accuracy and velocity. You want to spend all your time estimating and get super, super accurate? Well, that takes time. Who's going to do that? Engineers, designer, right? Wait, isn't there work to do right now? Okay, so do we have to have all of this right now? Do we need to write like a 30-page product requirements document, which is going to be obsolete in three Personal opinion, right? Um, so this understanding that things are fluid, that you will get more accurate and more granular the closer to the time when you're actually going to work on something and be okay with things being a little fluid. Um, lastly, tech debt. Um, you have to have, like, the very notion of debt is that you pay it off, right? Like, you get a loan because you want to build your business. Are you going to pay that loan off? Yes. Taking on that, that debt, does it help you grow? Initially, right? Because you get that little bit of funding, so you're not. Yeah, it helps you grow, but can you live with it forever? No, right? Or in many cases, no. Sometimes you just are like, okay, we'll live with this because we can deal. It's not, not the right time to address it. But the idea is you, you have to respect tech debt. And so, like when you when you're talking with engineers as a non-technical person, you have to have an under, uh, an appreciation for like architect like re, uh, like refactors, or you delete, you call out when you're taking on tech debt and then you try to pay it off over time, try to allocate a little bit spent towards paying off tech debt and so on and so forth. So anyway, um, and then selling in the idea of like a refactor to people who are not technical outside of the product team, to them it's just like gobbledygook. Like it's shit that's, it's, pardon me, it's stuff that's not like, it's not a shiny new thing. It's not, wait, but we have our revenue goals, we have our growth goals and all this, how is this gonna help? And it's your job as a PM to, at the right time, advocate for those things. It's not all the time that it's the right time. Sometimes you have to live with it for a little while for business reasons or whatever. But then sometimes, like, we're doing a, a, a refactor right now of our web hiring funnel, and, like, there are many benefits to it. Engineer motivation. You know, if it's something's written in a code that's, like, the engineering community is really not active, it's not fun to work on, somebody else wrote it, but we're not... Like motivation is important to understand with your engineering team, um, and just like kind of an active community. Also understand like investing this much velocity kind of drop while we do a refactor. How's that going to increase our velocity later and our ability to like customize things later? So have this long-term view. Anyway, in no particular order, those are all sorts of things that will help you as a non-technical PM get along really well and in the respect of of, um, of engineers. There are more things, I'm sure, but like, there you go. Um, similar to your answer for the interviews, how you tune your answer to the different challenges of the roles that people would ask you questions about. Um, similar to that, do you have any tips or tricks of how to communicate a current problem to different types of roles, whether it's engineers, designers, C-suite level people? And I, yeah, I understand it's like a generalization, but just like standard tips of like based on their motivations, how to so the, the question is, can you share some practical tips on how you communicate the same problem to different stakeholders such as engineers, designers, or C-level suite? It's a great question. Know your audience, right? Like one of those. Um, this is, this is a, it's a skill. Um, one thing that I'm working on, which some of you may have kind of picked up on right now, uh, I'm a little bit verbose. Um, <laughs> And I, and I sometimes over-explain or get into the details a little bit too much. Um, and so that's my, one of my personal things. Because, you know, I work, I, TaskRabbit's a very flat company. So I work 
on a daily basis with the, the CTO, the COO, uh, and several times a week with the CEO. And like, they have a lot on their minds. They have so much. So this is one of the groups I'll start with. They have a lot on their mind. They need the bullet points. But there's so much context in each bullet. <laughs> but there's like, but this thing and that person and that interest and that. Um, we do these things called ride-alongs at, at TaskRabbit. Like once a quarter, uh, you'll spend an hour uh, shadowing somebody in another completely different function, and they'll then spend an hour shadowing you. I actually just did it with our COO um, last week uh, in, in our ride-along, and then he stayed in on, it, on the kickoff that I did. And um, he kind of diagrammed out. Ours was actually less of me shadowing him and more just like, he just kind of dove into like what he does all day and it's like oh my god there's like all this stuff and at the end of the day he needs in order to stay sane and like keep an eye on like what are the most important things to keep this ship straight he needs the bullet points and so does the ceo and all this so uh for c-suite like if you write an email like walk away from it for five five minutes go back and cut it in half <laughs> right? That kind of stuff. Uh, same thing with a the slide. Um, then, like, there are other things. So let's say I'm working with operations, right? So we have a very operations-heavy business, right? And so a lot of humans and a lot of this and that. And they have, um, you know, for instance, they're very, very, like, I manage uh, among, like, one of the teams that I work with is the, ta the app that the taskers use. So I have a very, like, I, I like to think that I'm very close to taskers, I talk to them often, look at the data, bring them in, do testing. But the tasker operations team, they are living and breathing it day in, day out, 100% of their time. And so like, it's very, like we have a lot of very interesting conversations because let's say there's a business metric, let's say there's something going on with taskers in terms of, you know, um, we want to be able to um, get like, Let's see, like what's something? Like we want to be, able, we want them to know, like be motivated by like, you know, um, if you, let's say there's a promotion going on and like, you know, you know, X kind of tasks or whatnot, then you get some kind of bonus or something like that. Or let's say there's, um, you know, some kind of challenge with the, with the task graph. Like I'll, I'll look at it. Usually my default is like, Okay, like, how are they interacting with the product? How are they? But then there's a very human side to it as well, and they, they hear that. And so, what might be actually a really good idea for the product, or to move a certain product metric or business metric for that matter? Um, from their lens, they say like, well, let's say that we do something, and it's we know, like, we know the data tells us this will be good for like 90% of taskers. But guess what? 10% of taskers are going to be really annoying. Right? And so they'll call and they're whatever, and they have to deal with the brunt of that. And so that's actually a pretty good example, right? So, like, we try to do the best thing we can for taskers, and we do. Uh, but you can't always please 100% of people. So, like, it's very important for me when I'm talking with my colleagues who are in tasker operations to understand, like, okay, this might be actually a really good idea that's great for taskers, great for clients, great for all of this. But even if it's like 95% of the population, there are still going to be some people who are very pissed off. And guess what? Like, we have to remind ourselves, like, these are people. 
It's like their income. Like this is, it's not numbers, right? Um, and it's a great reality check because you got to stay very close to that. And I think, um, so in terms of how I calibrate myself with that audience, um, anytime there's kind of like a, a, a product idea or some kind of thing that we believe will be generally a good thing to do, um, before I speak with them, I try to imagine like what they would respond. Like even if it's great for the vast majority of what would, um, anyway, those are two examples. Um, it seems like the uh, marketplace has segmented quite a bit since TaskRab had started with like HomeAway and Instacart and mm -hmm. uh, a bunch of those ones now that will pick up your stuff from Ikea and take you, mm -hmm. uh, you know, take it to your place and bring it up for you. How is uh, TaskRab kind of combating the, uh, like the way that it's been segmented to that level? I, I love this question. So it's true, you guys were one of the pioneers in the, the marketplace. Uh, industry and now we see a lot of uh, competitors that are specializing in specific verticals uh, groceries uh, furniture assembling you name it how do you compete and at the same time stay like, loyal to your vision yeah that's a very uh, a very challenging strategic question right it's a really good one um, like going to like basic corporate strategy like across just any industry if if you have X resource and you allocate a portion of it, your portion of their portion of there, right? So your resources are spread out. And then you have a competitor who comes in and let's say they're even smaller than you. Sometimes they're bigger, you know, but they put 100% of the resource into doing one thing really, 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 really well. Um, what do you do, right? Uh, there's no clear answer to that. I mean, we have a lot of conversations about that. Like, how can we... Uh, put our best foot forward in the marketplace. Like we don't want to, quality is like a, a really important thing. Like we don't want to do something if we're not going to do a good job at it. Um, and so I think that's one consideration. Um, we keep a big eye on the competitive marketplace and, you know, and where trends are going, right? So like going back to the, the data versus vision question that you had, um, you know, like there's this, if you think about Wayne Gretzky, right? There's the saying that like, why was Wayne Gretzky such a great hockey player? He, would, he wouldn't go to where the puck is now, he would go to where the puck is going to be. And so we spent a lot of time thinking about where the puck is going to be. So like, yeah, there are these competitors now, but you know, also a big competitor of ours, it's like people just not realizing they can use us. Because if I need a car, oh, Uber, Lyft, easy, mental, TaskRabbit, if we do a lot of different things, it's it's not as, as, as crisp, right? I mean, it's a great thing. You can help with a lot of stuff, but it's not as, as crisp as like, I need a car, I'll call a car. And so we take that into consideration. Like, what do we want to like lean into? What are the most important things? What are, where are the opportunities? What, what do the clients really want? What are our taskers best at? And we just try to optimize and we test and yeah, it's a long road. It's a fun one. Uh, I have a, a question for you about um, organizational behavior. Uh, obviously, each company will organize their product team in a different way. And I always love to ask, how do you structure your team? Like, who do you report to? How many PMs do you have? How do you divide and conquer? Yeah, great question. Um, ours is the best organizational structure. <laughs> I don't know. It works. It works well. But um, yeah, every organization is different. Uh, it's a great question. So the way TaskRabbit is set up, 
is um, I'll start with uh, the product team. So we have the CEO, and then we have, starting with the product team, we have the uh, technical co-founder and CTO. Uh, he's my boss, uh, his name is Brian. Uh, so then you have various people reporting to him. Uh, so you have me, you have another PM uh, who has a design background. Okay? Um, who the other PM manages like uh, the native client app uh, for Android and iOS. You have the director of design and then the design team, uh, and data science uh, team reporting to as well. Uh, then you have our VP engineering, uh, and then he has all the engineers uh, reporting to him, uh, and then he of course the CEO as well. Then we have um, all the operations side of the business. So we have. Um, you know, marketing team also then rolling up into the CEO. Then we have um, uh, our customer support team, right? Uh, and they support both our taskers and our clients and all that. Uh, then there's our tasker operations teams uh, or team. Um, then we have like smaller, like one person team or two person team, which is like finance or our VP of legal or whatever. And then we have a couple of um, remote offices. So we have uh, a few people in New York and a few people in um, our London office. Uh, that's our one international market for folks who um, uh, didn't know that. Mm -hmm. And talking specifically about the product team, since you guys are a marketplace, do you have a product manager focused on the supply side and a product manager on the demand side or how many PMs do you have? How do you do this? Yeah, it's a great question. I think like there's another philosophy also where like like tribes, right? Mm -hmm. Like there's like that whole thing, which I think is actually really cool. Um, the way we are set up is um, I work with our Tasker team, so the app that Taskers use, and so like everything that is supply side, so to speak, like that's me. Uh, I also work with our uh, desktop and mobile web team. Uh, so that is uh, that covers our clients who just use the web to book tasks and manage tasks, as well as our risk admin fraud uh, kind of just loosely call it admin, right? Uh, so that's me. Uh, then there's the PM who is, um, does the client native app, um, and then our CTO uh, manages uh, another engineer uh, who is like platform everything platform, which is kind of. Uh, there are pros and cons, right? Like, you know, like full stack teams, and then, you know, there's like platform teams. And so um, we've gone back and forth, actually. Like right now, this setup uh, works really well for us. So I'm running a UK-based company that is new to the U.S. They're launching an app come June, traditionally um, B2B, and now it's going to be B2C because they've been web-based before. Dollar and in UK, they wanted to see dollar. Do you have any suggestion for moving, moving, you know, from internationally and then B2B and B2C? Can, can you rephrase that, narrow down a little bit? Okay, so what are you? Main let's let's phrase it this way. What are the main difference between uh, products in a B two B space versus B two C space? Yeah. Do you have any tips or advice? Uh, is there any specific? Yeah, I mean, it's a 
All very good questions. I need to pick But yeah, I'm happy to, to answer that. So uh, I'll just speak. So I will preface this by saying, like, I have not figured it all out. Like, <laughs> stuff is complicated. So this is all just my one kind of kind of experience and my opinion on it, right? Uh, for what it's worth. Um, so at Rosetta Stone, uh, I was working with a B2B product. Uh, it was called Advanced English for Business. Uh, and it was sold globally. Um, and then TaskRabbit is very marketplace, but let's just call it B2C, right? Um, the transition, I've never personally uh, worked with a transition of a B2B product to B2C, but what I can offer maybe are just anecdotes about the differences between the two. Um, and I hope some of it's maybe helpful. Um, so what I found with B2B was that uh, there's more risk aversion uh, because you usually have a sales team. And the sales team has their interests, which uh, are, don't, hey, you want to maybe test something? You want to do, wait, 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 no, 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 don't mess with my clients. I want to protect because it's revenue that's coming and it's maybe my bonus or whatever. And, and that's understandable. That's, that, that makes sense, right? Like your clients, like you want to make sure they're happy, right? So I get it, I get it. Uh, but at Rosetta Stone, what happened was it was, it was a challenge to say, we like we want to get we're in an ivory tower like yeah we're doing all the user testing on this but there's nothing like real testing and real data right mm -hmm. so i think one difference if you move to b to c is that it'll be easier to learn quickly and test and all that kind of stuff i'll go in the other direction in a second um another thing um with b2b is there's, there's a lot more like kind of long lead time stuff because you know, iterative approaches and MVP and da da da. Like MVP is usually nice and gold plated and all that, right? Because, and then uh, you know, at least at least in what I've seen, it's like, ah, oh, well, we can't have just the bare bones. It needs to look really kind of nice and then build that. So there's that tension and that that dialogue that needs to happen, because as a product person, you need to really understand the interests of where they're coming from, right? If you give them something that doesn't look good, then what's the chance of renewal and all that? And so it's all totally valid, but it's a conversation needs to happen. Um, those are two big things, right? Uh, and then there's one other challenge I've had in B2B is the idea of um, just this change now, but the but in Q1 of next year, that whole long lead time thing, I'm still I'm expecting like no impact on that timing, but we need to do all these things for uh, this big client now, right? Um, which you know introduce exceptions on going to B2C. Um, there's the advantages of being able to test quickly and all that kind of stuff. But there are also some big challenges, right? A lot more fragmentation. Who do you address? Um, you know, in a B2B environment, often you'll have clients tell you what they want. Now, there's the danger of that as well, right? Like in the days before cars, you ask somebody what they want, they would have said a faster horse, right? So, but... Generally speaking, like if somebody tells you like this is what I want, it's not useful 100% of the time, but a lot of the time it's pretty darn useful, right? Uh, it, it reduces your chance of getting something like super wrong. Uh, so it's more fragmented. Um, you have to place your bets uh, more strategically. Um, it takes a lot. It's a lot harder to learn. So you have to like decide how you're going to learn maybe, and what what means success. 
right? I think I think all that stuff when you're in B2B, like, sorry, in B2C, it's like, and you're just starting that or you're just starting it, like, I think spending a lot of time on trying to understand, like, what success looks like, how you're going to decide, like, what's the decision process to do this or that? Um, yeah, it could just go on and on. And Anyway, um, I hope at least that kind of mental dribble was useful. Uh, we, we have time for two more questions. Uh, what are some interesting, uh, entertaining client requests that you've had? You mentioned the dog throwing up on the carpet. Uh, what are some other kind of crazy ones where, yeah. oh my God, I can't believe someone requested that. <laughs> We've had so, so the, the, the question is, what, what are some examples of very weird requests you've got on uh, TaskRabbit? Yeah, I, a couple come to mind. One is, uh, my keys are at a tree. One are, my keys are at the bottom of the lake. <laughs> tasker went to get them. Somehow, we, I don't know how. We don't have like Michael Phelps as a Tasker, but, um, but, I, but it was a success. Somehow the keys were recovered. Um, another is... I think it was LAX uh, airport. Um, I am a San Francisco resident. I've, I'm in LAX right now about like in a few hours or you know later today I have an international flight and I've forgotten my passport in San Francisco at home. Can you go to my home in San Francisco, jump on a flight and then come to LAX and give me my passport? That happened and it worked and the guy left. Uh, and I think there was one I saw last year, which was really funny. It is, a, is another local task, uh, which was like, we're in a boat. I remember I saw this real time come through. We're in a boat in the San Francisco Bay. We would like some beer. We'd like a, like a, a case of beer. Can you? And I'm like, what? Did you expect to like throw it over the bridge? Or like, I don't know. I don't know what the expectation was of how to get the beer. I don't know if that one actually got done. <laughs> you know, also like the whole alcohol delivery thing. Kind of, but like, uh, yeah, those are a few. Mm -hmm. um, have you guys considered turning some of those into like advertisements or something? Like taking some of those really. <laughs> oh my God, where this is going now? Uh, <laughs> Have you thought about turning some of those uh, edge cases into advertising? Uh, sometimes it, when we talk about whatever ad campaigns, like they, they do come up, uh, but it's more just, uh, yeah, I, not yet, but we should definitely keep it in mind because honestly, like when it comes down to it, like, like those, they're like, those are like the oh no moments. Right, or you can use different language if you want. <laughs> um, but then, like, also, like, what do we want to be known for? Right? Is it just those like oh no moments, or is it kind of like the more everyday kind of stuff? But uh, it's certainly entertaining, and we do discuss it internally, like, in a in a fun way. Okay, well, thank you very much. Eric.